We're going to finish up the book of Malachi after Easter. But today I want you to grab a Bible and head over to Luke chapter 23. Now by a show of hands, how many of you are clueless as to what the church calendar, historically speaking, what the church calendar is? I'll, I'll raise my hand. I, I graduated seminary until recently. I couldn't have told you hardly anything about the church calendar. See, the historical church calendar has been practiced for over 1,500 years. Uh, originally, in its intent, it was to remind Christians every year the gospel story. The calendar consists of six seasons running from November to May. The seasons are Advent, Epiphany, which you probably know nothing about, Lent, Holy Week, Easter, and Pentecost. The rest of the year is referred to as ordinary time. The season known as Lent began last Wednesday. Uh, it's a 40-day long period of time, excluding the Sundays during that period. Uh, it ends the week after Easter, which is when Holy Week begins. It's 40 days because of Jesus, uh, the 40 days that Jesus spent fasting in the wilderness, which is recorded in Mark chapter 4. So Lent is traditionally a, a time for fasting. And when I was a, a, a junior high, I had a good friend of mine named David Wendell. He was Catholic, and every year he would uh, go to his parents, and, and they'd have to... Uh, give up something for Lent. And every year he tried to give up homework for Lent. And when that would inevitably fail as a, an acceptable option, he would then try to give up vegetables for Lent. And uh, when that failed, uh, sure eventually he'd have to get to something. But uh, I believe that every year his mother also told him, uh, I believe you are missing the point. Like many things, the point gets lost over time. Fasting from food or other good gifts of God for a period of time can, can, can serve to empty ourselves of these lesser things and gain a better thoughtfulness of the greater things of the gospel. But because over time, fasting during Lent became a requirement and, and became more about some feat of self-denial, and because it's not laid out explicitly in Scripture, today very few evangelicals acknowledge the church calendar at all, particularly the season of Lent. In fact, some reject the Roman Catholic call to fast for meat during Lent so much that they instead have begun having Feast of Meats on Fridays during the same season. Now, I'll tell you, we're not adopting the practices of Lent this year, not even uh, the name of Lent. You're, you're free to fast if you believe it will draw your thoughts to the cross and all that Jesus has done for you. But you're also free to eat meat, all the meat you want on Fridays if, if you feel so. Uh, fast or feast, but... Do so for the glory of God. However, I will tell you that this year we're beginning this series on the last seven statements which Jesus spoke from the cross, and we're doing so as a means to prepare ourselves for the grand celebration of Jesus' resurrection from the dead on Easter Sunday. Because sometimes we're just too quick to jump to the resurrection, forgetting to consider how Jesus ended up on the cross and why he remained upon the cross until he was finally dead upon the cross. And my hope is that as we focus on these last seven statements of Jesus, that we, we come to better know our Savior, not just know about our Savior, but better know our Savior, to understand His compassion, His love, His sacrifice, His emptying of Himself for sinners like me and sinners like you, like all who believe the gospel, who trust that Jesus died, died for their sins. And so what we're doing here is we're believing that these words of Jesus have something to say to us today, to our lives nearly 2,000 years after Jesus spoke them while laying down his life for us. 
Well, let's let's jump into this. Let's read the first of these seven statements. I'm going to begin in Luke 23, verse 32, so that we get a better idea of the context that we're reading this in. Uh, Luke 23, verse 32. Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the school, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy word and you have given it to your church Help us to understand these words of our Savior. Help us to know Jesus better because of them. Help us to understand ourselves better and how we might, in the power of the Holy Spirit, grow in our love for you and our love for others. Lord, if anything from my lips is not in accordance with your word today, may it be quickly forgotten. And if it be true, I ask that it leave a lasting mark upon our minds, upon our hearts. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. So the first thing I, I want to address here are just uh, a few of the details of this passage, and then we're going to jump into the, the statement that Jesus makes himself. Uh, the place that he's being crucified was called the skull. You, you may have heard it referred to in its Aramaic term before, Golgatha. This was a, a common place. Criminals were always crucified here. People knew about it. It would be like we use terms like Alcatraz and know that that's a, a place that prisoners were taken to, or we might say Leavenworth here in Kansas. Um, the soldiers are casting lots for Jesus' clothes. It's a dice-like game, and it fulfills this prophecy written in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, which reads, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. There's also this contrast between the Jewish masses who are silently just watching his crucifixion and the Jewish leaders who are scoffed at him, or rather scoffed at him. Scoffed is a word that, that means mocked, right? That means uh, they mocked him. And we see that in verse 35 where they say, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They're, they're mocking him. And the Roman soldiers join in the mocking as well. First they offer him sour wine, which was just normal wine that the soldiers would have drank themselves. They, they were trying to, to help, right? They weren't trying to help, rather. They, they were giving him this wine in the hope that it might prolong his life, therefore prolong his suffering if he had drank it. They also make a show of mocking him themselves by saying, if, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. It was common to put a, a sign above someone who was crucified to, to tell those passing by what they had done. It's a lot like, like we see on social media today where people are shaming their pets. There's a, a sign around a dog's head that says, you know, I, I, I ate my, you know, the entire couch today or I, I ripped up the carpet while my parents, my, my owners were gone or, or something of that nature. Just a warning to others, those who walked by, it was, you know, this guy that you see on the cross being crucified, uh, he was a murderer, he was a thief, he was a traitor, whatever it might be. Uh, as a way to deter them from, from doing these crimes themselves. And above Jesus, they, they write 
king of the Jews. Because at the start of this, this chapter, the Roman leader Pilate had asked Jesus, are, are you the king of the Jews? And, and Jesus responded, you have said so. <clears throat> you see, they, they write this above him as a condemnation. They, what they mean is he claimed to be the king of the Jews, but we truly profess this as he is the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings. And at this moment, if we're honest, he certainly didn't fit the worldly image of a king that anyone might want or hope to see. So that's kind of the details around it. I, I want to spend the rest of our time now on the actual statement of our Savior, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. First of all, who is Jesus speaking about? Who is the them in this, this passage that he is praying for? Is it the, the four soldiers who drove the nails through his hands and his feet? Is it Pilate or, or Judas or the crowds that were chanting, crucify him, crucify him? Is it, is it the Jewish leaders? <clears throat> and, and, and honestly, it could be merely the soldiers. It could be everyone. Either way, the significance of these words do not change for us here. So before we go too far, can, can we just be honest about our own hearts for a moment? I mean, really, truly honest. I'm not asking to shout this out, but honest in our hearts. Do you, do you find it difficult for you to forgive people? Do you do you forgive and let go of offenses against you easily? Or, or do you prefer to keep detailed records in your mind of what others have maliciously done to you or accidentally done to you that frustrates your life? Uh, you know, many of us, for whatever reason, kind of like holding on to bitterness. And, and yet here is Jesus, the author of life, unjustly being executed, being publicly mocked. Here is God incarnate, and, and he could call down lightning bolts. He could cause the earth to swallow these men up before his eyes. He, he could have simply willed them, just the will of his mind, and just willed them to melt like a marshmallow in an open fire before them. He, he could have done any of these things, but he doesn't. Jesus says, Father... Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus prays for the souls of his murderers while he's still hanging on the cross. He asks God to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He didn't mean they're completely ignorant here of what they're doing. You see, none of these men would have been shocked to hear, you know, that Jesus had been crucified later on. You know, having this conversation and one of them, you know that man that we shouted, you know, crucify, crucify, and, and we were trying to get crucified? Yeah, I remember him. What about him? Well, they crucified him. What? Are you? I had no idea it would come to this. Uh, of course, they knew what they were doing. And they know that they are executing an innocent man, but... Even if they don't fully grasp that, right? Even if they don't understand that, ignorance does not excuse sin. You can't tell the officer, I, I didn't know I was speeding. I had no idea because I didn't know what the speed limit even was. I, I know you can't do this because I've tried it and the excuse did not work. In fact, I was informed that it's my responsibility to know the speed limit. In other words, ignorance is not innocence. Sin is sin, even if we refuse to acknowledge it. In this prayer, Jesus is saying they're unaware of the magnitude of their actions. They, they didn't understand the depth of just how terrible 
this is. They are killing God incarnate. They are crucifying on a cross the holy and righteous one. Or as, or as Peter puts it later in Acts 3.15 as he's preaching the sermon. And what an odd thing to say to the people you're trying to convince of something. But he says, you killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. Can, can you imagine the weight if they understood what they really have done? I, I mean, you and I can say we're responsible for, our, for, for you know, Christ being on the cross because of our sin. Our, our sin put him there, and that's a true statement. But, but we share the guilt you know, with every other child of God along with us. And, and yet there is a, a soldier who actually drove the nail through the hand of God. And at some point in life or death, he became aware of what he actually did. Wow. Suddenly the worst sin you've ever committed doesn't seem so huge, does it? I mean, it's enough to make you guilty for sure. Don't, don't make any mistake about that. But, but so was the smallest sin you ever committed. And I only point this out so you can see from this prayer of Jesus that even the most horrendous sin in the history of the entire world can be forgiven. Some of us need to really know this. No, no matter what you've done, it can be forgiven in the gospel. And so there's something intriguing about Jesus' words here. I want, I want you to see this. Um, we'll get there in a second. And, and in Mark 2, a paralyzed man, a man who could not walk, uh, move his arms, anything, is, is lowered through the roof of a house by his friends um, to Jesus. And Jesus says to the par- paralytic man, Son, your sins are forgiven. He announces that. He uses his authority to forgive sins. In Luke 7, 48, Jesus tells the woman who, who is so uh, moved by, by his presence that she is washing his feet with her tears. And, and Jesus tells her by his own authority, your sins are forgiven. And, and did you notice, though, something odd in this passage? Because it doesn't occur anywhere else in Scripture, only here. Um, did you notice that Jesus doesn't pronounce the sins of his executioners forgiven? He asked God the Father to forgive them. He he is praying here. Um, but Jesus is God, right? Jesus has authority to forgive sins, right? So so why ask the Father to forgive them now? And and then the reason is incredibly rich here. Jesus is on the cross in our place. He's, he's there for me and, and and he's there for you and he's there for all who would believe or will believe. He, he's emptied himself. He's taken on our sin and as he hangs there, he is hanging as our representative, representing you and I, right? Our sin is actually upon him. In this prayer of Christ, he is identified wholly and completely with his people whom he is redeeming by this very act. And he does not exercise his authority. And so he prays for those who are executing him. Again, it, it's possible for the Romans and the Jews who have crucified the Lord of Lords to be forgiven of their sin. That's why Jesus prays for him. 
That's why we pray for others. You're, you're not wasting your time when you pray for God to give faith to the friend or the relative who seems so hardened to the gospel that you can't imagine that they could possibly ever believe. And what we're seeing here is it, it is possible. Do pray for them. You're not wasting your time because there are no unsavable people. Our, our prayers as God's people should reflect the truth of that. There are no unsavable people. Now, I'm sure it crossed some of your minds by now that those who Jesus is praying for have not asked for forgiveness. They haven't sought forgiveness. There there has been no repentance. There has been no faith. And so we look at this. It doesn't quite fit with Luke 17, 3 and 4, where, where Jesus says quite explicitly, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You see, forgiveness always follows repentance, meaning the forgiven individual has sought forgiveness. Now, don't lose sight here because Jesus doesn't just forgive them, but he prays for them. And one aspect uh, of what Jesus is praying to God the Father for is that he would grant them hearts that know their sin, hearts that desire to repent. That's, that's, that's what we're looking for. Now, it's an odd passage, I know that, but there is some incredible application for us in Jesus' words. Incredible. In, in Luke 6.35, Jesus says, love your enemies and do good. In, in Matthew 5.44, the same idea is expanded a little further. Jesus says, or Jesus teaches his followers saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then here in this first statement, he models how to pray for our enemies. Now, the first martyr, the first Christian uh, who was killed for his faith was Stephen. It's recorded in the book of Acts. And it shouldn't surprise us that Stephen actually follows Christ's example here on the cross. Uh, the Jews were throwing large rocks at him. Uh, this is not some sort of playground thing. They are trying to kill him. They will succeed in killing him. Uh, and in Acts 7.60, we read these words. It says uh, of Stephen, Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And, and when he had said this, he, he fell asleep. The last thing he does before being murdered is pray for those who are murdering him. I think what should surprise us is how little we follow this example of Jesus. And, and my prayer is that starting today, we begin learning the difficult call to love our enemies and to pray for them. And it's, it's true, you, you can't truly forgive someone who doesn't ask for it, but you can have a, a posture of heart that is genuinely ready and willing to forgive someone. You, you remember, I hope you remember, we do it every week, but we, we prayed the Lord's Prayer, and part of the Lord's Prayer we said, uh, we prayed that prayer, forgive us our debts, that's our sin. Uh, as we forgive our debtors, you, those who sin against us. Because we all know that, not only before God, but in regards to others as well, we've been the one who needs to be forgiven. We've been the gossiping friend. We've been the liar, the deceiver, the, the one who lusted after something or someone. We've been the betrayer of trust, the bold-faced thief. We've been the venom-tongued commenter on social media. We know what it means to be the sinner who needs forgiveness. We have accumulated so much debt, and in the gospel, the Lord forgives it all. 
every last bit, even future debt that will continue to accumulate until the day that we die, the day that we, we find ourselves before our Maker. You know what's, what's crazy about forgiveness is that the one who forgives pays the debt. Jesus pays the debt for our forgiveness. In a much smaller way, we pay the debt for those who sin against us. Now, before you string me up for blasphemy or heresy here, let me try to explain this. It, it cost us something to forgive another human. I'm not talking money. I mean, things like it, it cost us the drama of being able to share with someone what was done to us. Let me tell you the story of, of what horrible act was done to me. It costs the self-righteous pride of, of being the innocent in a situation. It costs us the bitterness that for some reason we, we want to hold on to, for some reason we enjoy, for some reason we, we think it's going to give us some sort of satisfaction. We, we like that affirmation, I think, when, when someone tells us, after we explain what's been done to us, you know, you have every right to be bitter. You have every right to be bitter. But, but I'm telling you this morning, I'm telling you that even if the sin against you absolutely justifies the feeling of bitterness and anger, I'm telling you that's not the way of our Lord. That's not the way of joy and peace and life and hope. And, and so we must start letting go of bitterness so that we're ready to forgive, so that we can pray and we can ask God to forgive those who sin against us. You, you who believe the gospel... You, you know what it feels like to have all your sin forgiven. You know the peace. You know the joy of that. And, and, and so I'm telling you, pray for your enemies that they might know that as well. Decide today that you'll forgive anyone who seeks it. And also pray even for those who, who won't seek it. Pray like our Lord. You know, Father, forgive my co-worker who dishonest, whose dishonesty has put us in a tough situation. Father, forgive the doctor whose malpractice or, or, or misdiagnosis has left me in incredible pain. Forgive that teacher who seems out to get me. Forgive that girl in my class who is constantly trying to hurt me with her words. For, you know, Father, forgive that woman who is stealing my clients, that man who is stealing my ideas. Forgive my, my parent who has neglected me, my spouse who has cheated, you know, the pastor who has failed to shepherd me in the way that he should. And it won't be easy. It won't be easy, not at all. I'm not saying it's easy because it won't be easy, but God desires for us to pray for that enemy, that fellow sinner. That doesn't mean you have to treat them as if they have not done something terrible to you. You don't have to pretend there, there is peace when there is not peace. There, you know, the, their sin may have put a wedge between the two of you in a very real way, but it doesn't have to put a wedge between you and your Heavenly Father. And so you can go to God and pray for your enemies. So there's one more thing I, I didn't mention about Lent at the beginning. Um... You know, as it began last Wednesday, you likely saw people around town with the ashes on their forehead, the, the sign of the, the, the cross in ashes. And uh, Ash Wednesday, that's what it's called. And it may feel a little like, like people wearing the I Voted stickers during election season. You have no doubt, okay, they've been to an Ash Wednesday service. Um, and, and here's the deal. We, we don't always understand these signs and what they mean. But the original purpose of the ashes was to remind people of two things. 
First, that God created us from the dust of the ground. The ashes are a reminder of our inescapable humanity. Second, they are intended to remind those who wear them of their sin and their mortality. Death exists because sin exists. Uh, you know, as Paul says in Romans 3.23, uh, the wages of sin is death. And whether someone is cremated or buried, all flesh eventually returns to the dust. Those are the words of God spoken in Genesis 3.19. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And again, there is freedom for Christians to mark their heads with ashes. But God's not instructed us in his word that we are to do so. And so there is freedom to abstain as well. But I'm telling you about this practice because I want to ask you something. I want to ask you about Christ on the cross. What about Jesus? Did Jesus become dust? And I know that you know that he didn't. I hope you know that. Even if you struggle to believe it someday, see, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, one of the major works he's doing uh, is this. He's renewing your confidence in the truth that Jesus did not become dust. Because while his body was in the process of decaying, God returned a beat to his heart and he returned life to his limbs and Jesus' life was returned to him absolutely. You see, in, in his resurrection, he became the first of many who would rise, raise, raise to life with God for all of eternity. And, and you and I, because of the sin of Adam, and because of the sin that we have ourselves committed, are deserving of eternal rejection from God and all the punishment he wants to pour out on us. But because of the cross, if our faith is in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. And if we can be forgiven so much by our sinless Savior, how much more ought we who daily fall on the mercy of God be willing to forgive fellow sinners who sin against God and sin against us and sin against those we love? And if you're here with us today and, and you don't know if your sin has been forgiven, I want you to know that because of Jesus, your sin can be forgiven. And if you have more questions, I would love to grab coffee with you. You you can ask any and every question you want to ask. I'll buy you the coffee. Uh, my contact information is on page two in the bulletin. Just contact me. Um, I'm going to close then with a quote from one of my favorite authors, a guy named J.C. Ryle. He says, Like Jesus, let us return good for evil. And blessing for cursing. Like him, let us pray for those who persecute us and wish evil upon us. The pride of our hearts may often rebel against the idea, but never let us be ashamed to imitate our divine master. The person who prays for his enemies shows the mind that was in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. You, Lord, showed grace to those who persecuted you while you hung on the cross. Not for your sin, but for my sin, and for the sin of every man, woman, and child in every age who would and will look to Jesus with faith. May we learn to rest in your work and follow your lead by loving our enemy and those who persecute us with the same grace that you have shown us in the gospel. Change our hearts, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.